All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Welcome to episode 230 of the DFO Rundown brought to you by Botano. 19 plus Please play responsibly. The game starts now with Botano.ca. I'm Jason Greger alongside uh, Frank Saravalli coming to you live from a muggy Nashville. It is hot. It is sweaty. Hey, get in good shape if you're coming to uh, Nashville for the draft. Pack and, shorts. Uh, pack many shorts. Oh, pack, yeah. Pack many pairs of underwear. A few pairs of T-shirts, uh, although they're not really in pairs, but you know what I meant. Um Frank, it's uh, it's always fun to do the pod uh, in person together, and uh, there's lots going on. Uh, I think it it might be a, a rather interesting uh, next 72 hours. Uh, there's lots of rumors, lots of teams. Let's start, I guess, with the the interesting name out there, uh, Pierre Luc Dubois and the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, this has been kind of a year in the making. He said he wasn't signing long term, and obviously he's sticking with that. Uh, the Kings and him have been courting one another, I guess you can say, for quite some time. I know the Montreal Canadiens would like to make it happen, but I think the Kings probably have more players that Winnipeg's interested in. They don't want to go full scorched earth. They don't want a complete rebuild. They want some players. Gabe Velarde would would be one that would make sense. Uh, What do you make of this deal? And do you think it really helps the Kings next year? Or is this more of a trade acquisition that's going to be like, when Kopitar is ready to leave, we have a replacement? Well, I think that's part of the idea is considering what this team looks like for the long haul. And that if you think about it from a Kings building perspective, you know, I've been saying for a while that the Kings championship window is just beginning to crack open with some of the pieces that they have. 
And adding Dubois in that same age mix as some of the other players on your roster would certainly help. Um, that said, like, want to caution everyone, like, this is not a done deal. And as we've seen over this past weekend, <laughs> there's a lot of things that can happen that derail something. So, yes, have the Kings been interested in Dubois? Of course. Uh, have they been knee deep in talks with the Winnipeg Jets? Yes. Um, but I, I don't. I actually don't. I've seen the reports and, and I'm not knocking anyone. I, I don't really have a strong sense that the Kings and Dubois have actually even been negotiating on a contract. Like, I think some of this is a lot of people want to connect the dots and put the cart before the horse. And I get that. This is silly season. It's trade speculation time. But just to caution everyone, like, it's not done. And there's. I, I believe truly that the Jets are talking to a bunch of different teams about a bunch of different things. Oh, yeah. Hellebuck's still in play. Mark Shifley, they're trying to figure out what to do with Blake Wheeler. There's a lot going on. And they, you know, I, I think Kevin Dayoff had a number of irons in the fire. And, and some people were curious, would something pop on Saturday? Here's what I'll say to kind of put a bow on the Kings portion of it is that... The trade they made on Saturday for Sean Dersey, moving him to Arizona for a 2024 second round pick. First off, that move was designed for the Kings to set themselves up for the next thing. They didn't want to trade Dersey. They were fearful, I think, of his arbitration number a year from now, which makes sense. He's going to be an expensive player. And more than that, it wasn't just about cap space for next season and beyond. It was also about getting another asset in their portfolio that they could then move. Uh, just look at their their pick board. Like they they weren't overflowing with draft picks, especially after this past deadline. And we're in a in a position where, hey, you need an extra second round pick. To, to potentially make something happen. And from the Montreal Canadiens in 2024, if you think about it, depending on how bad the Habs may or may not be, that could be essentially a late first round pick in theory. Yeah. And more than that, speaking of Montreal, like don't count out the Montreal Canadiens on the Pierre-Luc Dubois front, because I think they're also sitting there waiting and saying, we may not be willing to give up a lot to get this guy because we know that he's going to be UFA in a year from now. But I think the interest is there from the Dubois end. I just think it hasn't been as strong from the Canadians end. And mostly because um, they're in a spot where they don't have a lot of current assets to trade the Jets that the Jets are looking at it saying, we want to be competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to take this team and turn it right around and, and get in the mix. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see where Dubois lands. I don't think he's going to stay in Winnipeg. I think that's the, uh, the safe bet. Uh, and when you look at historically, now it doesn't have to happen before the draft. Everybody remembers, um, you know, a few years ago when you had the big trades on the Monday after the draft weekend involving uh, Subban and Weber and Hall and Larson. So you can't have it. Historically, though, more of the bigger trades happen uh, before the draft. Uh, we will talk also to a reminder that's really compressed this year. Yes. Usually it's draft and then there's like 10 days until free agency. 
The draft rounds two through seven are Thursday. Friday is the only day between that and free agency opening on Saturday, July 1st. So if theoretically, if something's happening, it's it's probably happening on or between now and Wednesday at seven when the draft begins. Yeah. And now day two of the draft is a day where we see it. Not the big, I would say more of the, uh, you know, guys like a Sean Dersey, for instance, or those type of trades, Kyler Yamamoto, potentially something like that, that involves picks in, in the second. And by the and way, the Oilers rounds. were pretty active over the weekend trying to move Yamamoto and settle that yeah. file. Also, I think the Oilers are kind of checking prices on a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, as they should. They they have a few holes to fill. I don't think they have a lot of significant ones, but they have some holes to fill. Uh, one GM, of course, uh, who will be involved, at least at the top of the draft board. We'll see if they'll be involved. Uh, he's looking for a center. I don't think Pierre-Luc Dubois will be that guy because he was already there. But uh, Yarmo Kekalainen will join us later on in the podcast today. So we will have uh, NHL GM Yarmo Kekalainen. He does uh, give us, us a hint. Since we did pre-tape it, he yes. gives us a hint of where he's going at the draft. So you'll have to tune in. Uh, I don't think it's breaking news to say that they're going to draft a franchise center, quote, as he said it. But it does make the draft board a little more interesting to play with. Now there are another, there is another team talking about uh, wheeling and dealing. The uh, Philadelphia Flyers obviously want to make some moves. Frank, uh, there was lots of rumblings. Of course, they, the trade, uh, you know, the, the rumors were it was Hayes and Sanheim to St. Louis for Tory Krug. There had to be more coming back than just Tory Krug in that trade to, to make sense for Philadelphia at all. And uh, it hasn't come to fruition. Tory Krug supposedly says, no, I have a no movement clause. I'm not going there. He'd rather go to a competitive team. You know, then there was, of course, the uh, Tony D'Angelo rumor of Carolina and, you know, Gary Bettman, maybe the NHL are saying, hey, wait a sec. We don't like guys who were who were traded, then signed and then traded back to the same team, even though it was a completely different uh, general manager in Philadelphia when that trade was originally made. But I look I think at that's total bullshit, by the way, Yeah, because first off, there's a whole bunch of different things to sift through with that one. It was a different COVID calendar. So if you actually think about it, it has been a full year. It was draft to draft. And second, this is of no benefit to the flyers because they gave up a second, third and fourth to get him signed him to a $10 million deal. And then now are eating half of what's remaining in order to make this happen. And they're getting, or the, the plan was to get a prospect back. That is not a, why are they doing the deal? That's my question. Like, where do, where do you honestly, when I, when I look at these two trades and even just the fact that they were close, but never happened, at least not now, I wonder like what direction are the flyers going? Scorched earth. And look, I don't know why people continue to be surprised about this because, but is getting Tory Krug scorched earth. They're not trying to keep him. They're trying to move him. Like they're, it's just one, it's a, it's a, I viewed it as a way, not a a pure salary dump, but the motivation for the blues was to create flexibility. They're not trying to, they, they have other guys on their team that I think are a bit harder to trade. They've got Falk and they've got Letty and Scandella and all like this group of guys that they're saying, essentially let's take the undersized guy who's missed a quarter of every season since he's been in St. Louis, who mm. makes a lot of money. It has four years left on his deal and let's change him out for something else. And so 
that's their thought process. And we'll touch on the Blues in a second. But the Flyers thought process is let's accumulate as many assets as possible. Let's get as many draft picks and young players in here as we can. And then they'll deal with the collateral of trying to move Krug somewhere else after the fact. Yeah, no, and I agree with all that. But my point would be, why would you just... Why do you have to eat money on Tony D'Angelo? Why not wait? Guy has a decent first half of the season. You trade him at the deadline for probably more than what you get now, right? Because you don't need the cap space. I get where your head's at, but I think they also want to try and move him before the season starts because I I just think whatever happened there with John Tortorella, and I, I don't, I'm not assigning blame to anyone. I think... They like it's the same reason they're moving Kevin Hayes. They know Kevin Hayes can't coexist with John Tortorella anymore, so they got to move him. Okay. Yeah, I, but I I'm with you though. I personally, I, I think it makes more sense to hang on to him and just say, you know what, we got to suck it up, and we could actually get something of real value yes. for you. Not only that, but here's the other part to consider when if you're moving Hayes and you're moving D'Angelo and whatever else you're doing next, you begin to run into an issue with retained salary transactions. You only get three. And so if you're retaining on Hayes and you're retaining on D'Angelo, well, Hayes is for the next three years. Yeah. D'Angelo, you'd have to bite the bullet on the, the retain for this last season of the deal. But then that only leaves you one spot of flexibility that I think you have to. That's why I think all of these pieces that were moving around the chessboard over the weekend that ultimately didn't happen are all sort of interrelated and interconnected. And and I do wonder about the fact that so much of it became public and none of it's transpired. Like, I wonder how, you know, is is there inexperience at play there? Is somebody leaking? Is Danny Breer like, hey, wait a sec. We got some guys in here that need to zip it. So that because. We know the guys talk trades all the time, Frank, and a lot of them don't ever come to fruition, but a lot of them don't ever become as public. Yeah, I don't I don't really have an answer for you there or as to why that happened. I, I mean, look, I get that people love the speculation. I also think a bit of what's happened in the last couple of days is unfair to Tory Krug, too. You shouldn't be put on the spot publicly. Yeah, exactly. And then now... Like, it's hard enough, I think, if you're in that position and you feel like you are vilified a bit. Mm-hmm. He's in a really awkward position because it's great that he has the no trade and I give him full marks for flexing that muscle. That's why these clauses exist to be able to say, I, you know, it's not about Philadelphia, it's not about the market, it's about the idea of going to a place at 32 years old that you have to embark on a rebuild and you may not see the other side of where you're heading. That's a hard place to be. Oh, a hundred percent. And I get a Tory Cruz got four years left on his deal. He doesn't want to go to a team with their scorched earth. And he's like, I got no chance to even remotely compete for even a playoff spot. I can't the, like the list of players that have said no to the flyers over the years has to be incredibly small. It's a great market. They treat their players really well. First class organization. It's a rare thing, but it's an indication of first off how much he wants to compete. And second, that now he's left with this feeling of great. I've said no, but now what? I'm stuck in a place that I know doesn't want me. Yeah. And so that's the really difficult part of it. And I, I, 
I hate seeing that play out from a public perspective because I just think it's unfair to have him sort of second guessed as, oh, the guy that blocked everything. Yeah, no, it's it's never fair. And that's why it's it's a little surprising. Sometimes you'll hear, oh, you know what? I heard this guy was being shopped and that guy's being shopped. And that happens all the time. But to, to see almost the whole trade go public and then it doesn't happen, I don't think it's a good look on, on either party. Um, now, one name out there, Frank, hasn't been out there a lot, but- if you connect the dots and you look at the salary cap and you look at the team, what's your thoughts on Nylander and the Toronto Maple Leafs? Um, how how important do you think it is for Brad Tree leaving? Does he want an extension right away starting on, on the weekend when they can sign extensions to Matthews and Nylander? Is he concerned about it? We've seen some teams where like Johnny Gaudreau, so it's fresh in everybody's mind. Johnny Gaudreau, they waited, they didn't sign him, and then boom, he walked and left him, and he got nothing. And Tree Levine, of course, was part of that. But Nylander, I think, is a little different. I've never heard anything that he wants out of Toronto at all or Matthews. So do you think they have to have those guys sign to an extension before September or October? I don't think they have to, like, I don't think there's any absolutes, but I think in a perfect world, Brad tree living would have an answer as to how this is all going to play out. And I think that's part of what he's sifting through. I think he's been pretty aggressive in the last week to 10 days of really trying to hammer down on Nylander specifically, because I think he understands that Matthews wants to see what the board looks like before he, I don't want to say makes a decision. He wants to be back with, with the Leafs and I don't, no one's questioning that whatsoever. I think the big thing is he wants to know what's happening around him. And I think he actually, one of the big questions he has is not only where, what happens with Nylander, but how does it happen? And what does the deal look like? And I think that's a big first domino as part of all this, whichever way that ends up going. So here's here's where I think it gets fascinating over these next two weeks. Period, full stop, the Toronto Maple Leafs want to re-sign William Nylander and are making a push to do that. My question is, what if Brad Tree Living gets to a dead end? and finds that there really is no viable path to make that happen in a manner in which the Leafs are comfortable. Maybe the number is too big for what they want to spend, whatever it might be that gets in the way of getting that done. There's, We've talked about this before with the Calgary Flames. There's scar tissue that exists there from the Johnny Gaudreau situation and how that played out. And so you're right, this is different. But it's also Brad Tree Living sitting at a table across from the same agent Johnny Gaudreau and William Nylander share the same agent. And not to say, no one is saying that Louis Gross is difficult, his agent. It's just that there has to be some part of Brad Tree Living somewhere that's thinking, what if? And if we start this season and we allow it to play out and Nylander isn't signed to an extension, are we going to, is this guy going to walk for nothing? Uh, I wonder if it's a little different because Johnny Gaudreau was kind of their number. If he wasn't one, he was one A him and Kachuk. Nylander, some would say he's maybe number four. Some would argue maybe he's number three, right? So I wonder if that changes it a little bit. But are you saying that you think Nylander would re-sign before Matthews automatically? Not automatically. I think that that's their push is to try and... I, I think in a, in a perfect world... The order would for the Leafs would be Matthews one no like fill out your biggest ticket item first and then mm-hmm. figure out what you have left. 
But I think the play from the Matthews camp has been a slow play. It's like, you know, as great as, again, what this situation is, our interested in returning, all those things, they're kind of pumping the brakes saying, even if you give us what we want, we want to take our time here. We, we, you know, we want to be in a spot where we feel really comfortable about everything and have a full purview of not just what the contract looks like, who's going to be there and what are the other things that Brad tree living is trying to do? Cause here's the thing, Brad tree living. He call it first off. It's, it's his, it's his MO. He calls everyone about everyone. He wants to find out what prices are around the market. And so I think some teams, their eyebrows have been raised saying, what are they up to? Why is he asking about high-priced players on other teams? Is there a possibility that Nylander could be traded? And I think there is, but only if he reaches a dead end. Yeah. And that makes sense. You know what? I don't think you're doing your job as a GM. If you're not out there, fine. Hey, what is the price point? Maybe some team's willing to sell lower on a guy. And if it makes your team better and you end up making another move because of it, that's all good. Now, one guy who, well, there's two other guys I want to get to before we get to uh, to buy or sell with Tyler. Uh, The Flames, of course, because we all know what's happening there. Uh, You were breaking Calgary Flames fans' hearts uh, last week on Twitter. It was quite comical. Um, Just watching the reaction was pretty funny. But... Uh, the St. Louis Blues, obviously we know Doug Armstrong's looking to wheel and deal, Frank. And we'd heard, of course, the one rumor. I think the Blues could be fairly busy here. What, what do you make of the Blues situation? And and how busy do you think Armstrong's going to be more so wheeling and dealing? rather Because he's got three first rounders rather than, um, than just, uh, you know, signing guys in free agency. Very busy. I think there's a there's a chance. Look, the list of of busy GMs over the next few days is pretty long. You've got Kevin Day off of the Jets. You've got um, Craig Conroy with the Calgary Flames, yeah. Danny Briere with the Flyers. But then Doug Armstrong is lurking in the weeds yeah. with two additional first round picks. Aside from number 10 overall, they've got 25 and 29. And I think there's a real chance that after picking at 10, Doug Armstrong doesn't go to the podium again until round three. Cause they don't have a second rounder. So right. yeah. So that I think is the play and the plan. And he had plenty of lines in the water once, you know, at least to this point, it, it became clear that the T- Tory Krug part would put a roadblock up on the Kevin Hayes deal. Cause so when you look at teams then, so the blues, if, if, cause they currently have Dallas and Toronto's picks, right? Um, if you look at other teams and say, okay, who, do, who has pieces that would want a first round pick, right? Teams that are thinking, okay, we're a few years down the road. We need to, to accumulate more of that. Right. And then like, I wonder, like, I don't see necessarily a fit. I looked at the roster. I don't necessarily see a fit um, f- for Nashville per se, as somebody that, you know, players they'd want to get rid of. Cause you know, Barry Trotz, I know they made the deal with Johansson. I actually like that deal by the way, for Colorado. And I kind of understand it for, uh, for Nashville as well as, you know, I, I wonder like who are the teams that would be willing to take on some player, you know, a first rounder to give you a player. Right. Like obviously we know that uh, Philly would be one, but who else do you see as a fit in this? I wonder about a team like the Islanders cause they don't have a first and 
And they got to change something on you that team. You would think that they do, but the Islanders, of course, as I always put them in that category, only God and Lou know. Yeah, like, <laughs> good luck trying to figure out what all that means. But think of other teams that don't have first-round picks that have to do a little something to change it up. Like, I don't think St. Louis and Dallas are trade partners. No. Um, I do think... Dallas was one of the teams potentially that was in on Kevin Hayes. I think the Detroit Red Wings were too. Um, I mean, there's there's considerations to make all over the league in terms of prominent potential players that could be on the move that have decent cap hits that teams are just looking for space. Uh, like, what about the Calgary Flames and the St. Louis Blues? Makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. I just don't know how valuable for Calgary getting those two late first round picks is. Like, I don't think it's very valuable for no. them and their plan, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Like, I wonder if they maybe take one of them and then they're getting another NHL player involved in that deal to, to ship out some of their guys, because I think Calgary's got some players that, St. Louis. Well, hey, if St. Louis could move Krug out in one deal, if they bring in, although I guess if Sanheim was the one guy, but if maybe that one falls through, then maybe they look at a guy like Noah Hannafin. Um, I think Toffoli uh, fits exactly in what St. Louis has done for years and the type of player that they look for. So um, that that's one to me. I was just trying to connect the dots on some of these, but uh, Doug Armstrong definitely is a guy that, you know, I'd be curious if we had to rank Calgary, St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Winnipeg, between now and Thursday, who makes the most trades? One through four. I think it's uh, Philly, Winnipeg, St. Louis, Calgary. See, I, I would. I still think the Jets are going to be number one. I. So I, let me let me add. Since we're talking about the draft board, I want to add in one nugget that's sort of been floating out there. I know there was a lot of speculation heading into the weekend about the Flyers and the potential of drafting Matvey Mishkov. And my understanding is that the Flyers have. First off, not only do they have interest in drafting him, but I think that they've been looking at different scenarios to try and put a package together to move up from seven to four or five, probably not six, because at that point you'd see the draft board unfold and you'd have a real good sense one way or the other. And some people think that Dvorsky is going to Arizona. Yeah. Some people think that I don't think that's a done deal by any stretch. And look, there's a lot to play out. I also just don't know what the risk profile is for the coyotes at this exact moment in time, because we already saw with the Jersey trade. And I think the coyotes are going to make a lot more smart moves over the next few days leveraging all the picks that they have, especially the second rounders. They have nine, they had before the trade, they had nine second rounders over the next three years. That's a, so like, first (laughs) off teams were shocked that that trade happened because they were like Nils Lundqvist, a prospect from the stars or from the Rangers got a first last year. Jersey is light years ahead of that. I know you need to pay him, but the fact that, the Kings weren't able to get a first really surprised a lot of people. They felt like maybe with all these other things happening with Dubois and wherever else that maybe the Kings were a little bit too quick to act and they felt a little bit panicked thinking that some of this other stuff might've been closer. 
So that that's one part of it. But just going back to the Flyers, I think what they're trying to do is accumulate some more late first round picks. Obviously, if they need to, they can make the pick and they'd be excited to. But they already have 22. So they have seven and 22. And I think what they're trying to do is take maybe seven, 22 and whatever else required to then see if they can move up to you know, four or five to get in that spot. Now, I say all that knowing that the Sharks have been really, uh, to my understanding, dead set on picking fourth. Yeah. And my question Will is, Smith. if that's the case, who are they picking? So I think there's some speculation that Will Smith is the guy that goes at four. I but would then where do, the, where do the Canadians go at five? Then you've got the Coyotes at six, and then the Flyers might be sitting there wondering, is there any chance that we don't have to do anything and Mitchkov could fall to us? I just, I am stunned if Mitchkov falls that far. I'll be be stunned. He was, he is so good. And I understand people, you watch him, I still remember at the U18s when he was, uh, you know, two years younger, him and both Bedard, and they were great. And Mitchkov actually outscored him in that tournament. And I'm not saying he's as good as Bedard, but I think this guy is a hell of a talent and I understand there's some concern can lack of views and everything. And of course he has a contract, but name the last star player who didn't come. Name the one who didn't come. Eventually they all come right now. Some of them are late developers. You get fines like Panera and you get fines like Caprice off and others, but things that sound dirty that aren't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, so I just, I think teams, you have the built-in security not to screw this up by rushing the player. They're basically saying, hey, guess what? We don't have to rush him, even though we all want to. And we say we don't. We all get sucked in and do it every year. There's always one or two every year that get rushed. That's why I think the Coyotes aren't taking him. Um, Because, and look, I could be totally wrong. Because they want to rush someone? (laughs) No, not because, but I think they're under a different set of circumstances now. I reported it last week. They are going to be adding players. They want to be good. They want to be competitive now. And I... No one has said this to me, and in fact, they've disputed it. But I think the real answer is they've their owner wants them to generate more buzz in the marketplace. They well, that- want to try and get an arena deal, and having one of the worst teams in the league playing at Mullet Arena is no way to generate that. I agree. And they feel like they have to do this in order to basically keep the team in Arizona. And to me, though, wouldn't getting Meechkoff at six create more buzz than no offense. If you're, if you're taking Dvorsky or somebody else at that point, I don't think they come with the same flair that a Meechkoff and, and you can build the hype machine up because he's, Oh, he's coming in three years now in two years. Oh, guess what? He's coming when our new arena is built, but they need something sooner. Yeah. But he wouldn't help them this year. And even, would he even go there? You heard the idea yeah, that's and fair. that's been angled a lot. And I don't know what, again, I don't know what's true and what isn't, but a lot of the talk has been that he wants to try and pick his destination. And I, I don't, I mean, first off, I don't know who's in like, this is not to knock the coyotes. I don't know who's enthused to go to Arizona at six and 12 anyway. Yeah. Well, that's fair, but I really don't six and 12, even if it was, you know, let's say it's not me. Cause if Meechkov could come over this year, he wouldn't drop that far. But is the sixth overall pick any of those other guys? They're not playing in Arizona this year. I don't think they're ready. So at, at least to make any sort of impact, that's going to be positive. If you want your team to be more competitive, number six and 12 should be picks that are going to help you down the road. And you trade those other picks to get more Sean Durseys. That would this be a is, much better plan. 
This is the issue with the NHL draft in general is that you're projecting a guy for five years from now. And that's really hard to do. I understand. This is why you take Meechkoff. I'm just saying that's the guy I have the opportunity to take him four or five. Like the San Jose Sharks are another team. They're, they're not close to being competitive. They're a team that's in three years. Like they probably have to go scorched earth a little bit at some point. The problem is they got too many veterans on big deals that it's hard to do. So to me, it's fascinating to see what happens. And the, the Meechkoff pick to me, Frank, that's when uh, even they, I saw the report about uh, Pat Verbeek and the Anaheim Ducks at number two. And, you know, would they do it? Who knows? But uh, I think once Bedard is picked, then it gets exciting. And the longer Meechkoff goes, like if he gets to seven and if you're the Philadelphia Flyers, right? And then I wonder, does Washington, if he's still there at six, do they try to move up to six to get him from Arizona before the Flyers take him? Maybe. Right. That's where it could be. But I, I, I think if the Flyers get a sense of that, they have more ammo to do it. True. And... I just, I, so I don't, here's the thing. And I think this is what the flyers are going to figure out, at least from everything that I understand. I don't think San Jose is willing to move number four. I think Montreal for the right price would consider flipping seven and five. Oh yeah. But then I, I also, I mean, the coyotes would have to consider it too just for the flyers to guarantee they get the guy, it, it, you know, again, we're all assuming that that's accurate and that he is the guy. I can just tell you that. I think the flyers are, that's what I believe part of their motivation is for getting some of these. Why move, you know, so-and-so now it's to get an extra pick so that you can have the ammo to do whatever it is that you want to pull off on Wednesday. Let's bring in uh, Tyler Remchuk for buy or sell. Ty, how you doing? Good. I'm happy the room we're in has AC, guys. Right? It's yeah, pretty, it's yeah. pretty hot here. Pretty hot. Pretty hot. Uh, buy wanna, or sell. I want to burn my clothes. I've only been here for 24 hours. <laughs> I got a Nashville themed edition of buy or sell to kick things off. A couple of hockey questions at the end, but then you guys went and kind of talked about them before the segment. So you kind of ruined it. Uh, but the first one buy or sell on hot chicken, Frank. Bye. So my follow-up is if they give you like the little scale of like one to five, five being the absolute hottest, which one do you pick? Three. Okay. So you play right in the middle. Greg's buy or sell on hot chicken. Yeah, I'm selling. I'm, I'm a sissy when it comes to uh, hot food. I don't really like it. But so. have you had, have you had Nashville hot chicken? I'll go to like, if it's a one to five, I'll, I'm with Gregor. I'll go to like the two. I could that's go to a two probably because yeah. I like Frank's red hot. So is, is a Nashville is the number two? No, so it's that? totally, that's the kind of cool thing about Nashville hot chicken is that it's different. It's not, there's no sauce. It's actually baked into the breading of the chicken. Yeah, yeah. So, but still, then it's going to be hot. So how it's, hot is it's, it? Yeah, but like that, you can actually, t- it, yeah, it is a different kind of hot, but you can actually, when you go there, they have like the varying yeah, okay. levels and you can actually kind of, not, so, it's not a, it's not like going to a Thai restaurant yeah, where they yeah. ask you like, so one they have 10. an introductory level that I could say, yes. Hey, I want to try. Okay. Yeah. Well then I would try it for sure. It's, and level. it's legit. Right. Okay. All right. We'll do a little, maybe we'll do a little DFO food review later on in, uh, in the week. Uh, number two, country music, buying or selling Jason. Oh dude, I grew up on a farm Buy all day long, Frank killing on the, uh, on the dance floor, a little two-stepping yeah. all over it. I'm not doing that, but I'm a huge country music fan. So what's in your playlist right now, Frank? What were you bumping as you flew into town? Actually, uh, on my way to the airport, my go-to is the Zach Brown and similar artist playlist on Apple music. Okay. So it's, I, I, for, I, I mean, I'm kind of like one of the original Zach Brown 
That's your flex. That was my, I, like I was a fan back when he was like opening as the opening act for, oh, for all, people. That's always cool when you find an artist. that. But early. then I think he sold out. So I'm kind of out on Zach Brown, <laughs> but I, you know what? Uh, so going to the NHL awards, uh, on Monday night, looking forward to it. Cause they're going to have all these country music stars there, but you know, I've been really on a kick recently is uh jelly roll. I don't jelly know if it's, it's a fat guy wow. thing where I'm like, I enjoy it. And I don't know if you've seen the documentary on Hulu, but it's really good. Guys had an incredible life worth checking out. Yeah. I think I've seen some clips of it on TikTok. He's he's going to be at the NHL awards. Really? He's going to be presenting one of the awards. So oh, Dirk Bentley's uh, hosting. hosting. Yeah, yeah. He's hosting. And speaking of hot chicken, we're going to be doing a little bit in the show with biz and Elliot Friedman. And so it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting. Frank's going to be on TV. All right. Third Nashville related one, uh, casually rocking a cowboy hat. You buying or selling on that, Frank? Are we going to see you in a cowboy hat this week? Uh, that's a sell. Greg's dude. There is no more bigger need- frauds <laughs> in the world than guys who rock cowboy hats who have no idea of anything farm related. Having grown up, I used to go with bar in Edmonton, Cook County, and you'd see it all the time. Right. Guy, walk, he's got his cowboy hat on and his super tight Wranglers. Right. It's got his little dip in the back that's worn out in his pocket. <laughs> and you're just like this, you know, the guy's living on uh, 85th street downtown and this in guy a basement help to do and no dude, he wouldn't know like a Charlay from a, a black Angus, even if you gave him a color code. So no, I find cowboy hats, a uh, legit cowboys wear one. I grew up on a farm. I never wore one. All right. So hold on. Wouldn't Jay be like the perfect candidate to be wearing a cowboy hat in Nashville? You can pull it off. I mean, you don't like. You, no, I could wear a cowboy hat. Sunburn. I no, mean, no. He's, he needs I could to wear a cowboy hat. I just, you know what? I never really liked the look, but plus cowboy boots, had them as a kid. Ne- I, f- I never found a comfortable pair of cowboy boots, so um, didn't like them. But the cowboy hat was just, unless, you know, it's honestly the, uh, like a Stetson's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. But honestly, the best cowboy hat I ever wore was usually like one of those cheap straw ones because they were way more comfortable. Fair enough. All right. I do have two hockey related questions for you About guys. Time. The Predators make a big splash with the draft at home. Last year, obviously, it was in Montreal. They had the first overall pick. It's easier to do it, right? The buzz around Slavkovsky. But remember, they made the big trade getting Kirby Doc. Does Nashville do a similar level trade? Frank, buy or sell? No. You're selling. I'm selling. But here's the thing. I think the Preds are a bit of a wild card because... A lot of people have been saying the Preds are rebuilding. The Preds are rebuilding. I got to tell you that I think the big thing, you you see the Ryan Johansson trade. I think the Preds were after a culture reset. Hmm. And I do think some of the moves that um, David Poyle made on his way out at the deadline helped set the Preds up for this. But part of it was also trying to clear the deck and gain some flexibility after they were really kind of locked into a tough spot. So you see the Preds now, they've got Soros, who I've never heard him in trade talks, and I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, Roman Yossi, Philip Forsberg, those are kind of the three core pieces. And the truth is, with three players like that, especially as good as Soros is, I don't think the Preds have a chance to bottom out. And so I think this was the beginning of a reboot. It may not be for this year, but I do think that 
Barry Trotz will acquire someone or something with the newfound cap space and draft picks that he has, that there will be some kind of splash, but not, I don't think it's like over the top, like Kirby doc and Slavkovsky, some kind of thing like that. And we just talked about how hard it is to get into the top 10. I I don't think it's a huge splash on day one. I think he's involved in some trades on day two. They have 10 picks in the first four rounds. So I, and you know what, you, you keep trotting out all those young players and that's exciting. But at some point I, I could see him, you know what, uh, maybe a few, a few picks for, a, for an NHL player, not a superstar, not maybe not even a Kirby doc, but I expect him to make some trades. You know, he freed up some cap space with the Johansson deal and he'll want to fill that. All right. And question number five, you guys touched on it a little bit here, but I guess with the timeline of today until kind of Friday, I'm going to say Craig Conroy makes two trades before flying home. Greg's you buying or selling? Hmm. It's a good line because it's a good line because Tyler's a gambler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say well, I like chaos. I'm going team chaos. So yes, I will say I will buy that he's that he makes uh, two trades. I I think there's a few of those you know names that are out there that are easier than than other ones to move. So I will say that he makes two trades, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to involve one of the four guys whose name has been out there is not coming back. Fair. I will buy the proper odds maker would have set this at one and a half though. Um, at least two. Yeah. So okay. I'm going to say Hannafin. Yeah. And I'm going to say. To Foley. Yeah. So yeah. those are my two. That makes sense. Those are kind of the two I had in mind too. And then the longer shots would obviously be what, like a backland and uh and a Lindholm there. Right. So you kind of have, is that how you break them up into tiers in terms of those four names? Like Hannafin to Foley at the top, likely well, to go Lindholm, Backlund, right? I think the, the interest is way more on Lindholm than it is any of the other players. I mean, right. Hannafin has a, a lot too, and, and so would to Foley. But the Flames are still, and I'm told even over the weekend, took another run at trying to sign at Lindholm. Hmm. And why wouldn't you? Honestly. Yeah. Well, I agree with you, but at a certain point when you're not getting an answer, the answer is probably no. And I, you know, again, I think they're, they're trying on a bunch of different, like, I think they're going to take another run at backland, but I think the answer is no. And And we know the answer is no with, with, um, Hannafin. And we know the answer is no with Toffoli. So I, I just, Backlund's a guy you can trade during the season, right? They're like, I don't know. Are you getting more for Backlund this summer than you would at the deadline? I also want to remind everyone too. I don't think there's a lot of animosity in any of these situations. Like if you had to bring Noah Hannafin back and you felt like you weren't getting the proper value, he's not going to kick and scream in October and be like, I can't believe you're bringing me here. No one hates it in Calgary by any stretch of the imagination. They just, some of them want to do something a little different and all of them are different reasons. Hannafin's goal is to be back playing in the U S and you know, you've got to he's looking for term and you've, you know, Lindholm I think is, is really unsure about how competitive this team could be. And you go through the list and everyone's got a little something different yeah. as to why they may not want to come back. And that's really kind of what, the flames are wrestling with is like, how do we, how do we do all this and remain competitive? Well, the, the one thing that 
benefits Craig Conroy is if you make the deals, as you mentioned, Thursday's day two of the draft, Friday you breathe, and then free agency begins on Saturday. And uh, there, there's not huge names out there, but there are some guys that uh, Calgary could bring in uh, free agents if they wanted to to maybe fill the void a little bit. But um, I do think uh, he's going to make the two two drills. But I think Backlund's the one guy that I, I think he probably could, if he has a a decent year, maybe even a little bit better than the one that he had last year. That's a guy at the deadline that lots of teams would have interest. And I think you probably get more then than you would this summer. It's kind of odd how similar the situations are between Calgary and Winnipeg. Both teams have guys that want to go in other directions. They've both had these guys be core pieces for a long time. And their goal is to be competitive, not rebuild. And so trying to get what you need on the open market, because most deals we see are future deals. Teams don't, this is the only time of year you can get a player in return. Once the season starts, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard to get someone back. And especially for Winnipeg, they struggle on the free agent market. Calgary also on the list, but to a lesser extent in terms of getting players to want to sign there, that they have to do a lot of their business on the trade market to get a piece that makes sense. Lastly, uh, Hellebuck. Any, any, anything you're hearing on him? Destinations? Not, I'm Nothing. really not. But I also wonder too, I, I'm told the Jets have been talking to some teams on some package deals. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Because the thing is, if you look at goalies who get traded, they rarely get a great return. Rarely. It's hard. So, you know, a team could could end up stealing Connor Hellebuck. I think, so we talked about Travis Sanheim um, from the Flyers. I think he could be a really interesting fit in both places, in both Calgary yes. and Winnipeg. Oh, makes especially sense Especially with the, the term on his contract, especially with, you know, if you look at Sanheim and his situation played for the Hitmen, um, is from Manitoba, yeah. like either one, I think there's probably a lot of comfort there that for a guy that signed an eight year, $50 million deal with the flyers, you're thinking, you know, that's where he envisioned playing that at least if you're going to take that deal and move it somewhere else, it be in a place that you're comfortable with. Well, you look at Calgary and if you bring in Sanheim, that helps them, but what are they offering that, that Philly wants if Philly's going scorched earth, right? Like maybe it's a, maybe it's a three-way deal. Potentially. Maybe. Yeah. We'll see. Be a lot of fun. Now, Ty. Yeah. That, that was all I had all right. for uh, my five buy or sell questions. Okay. Thanks, guys. There you go. Now I'm, the- I'm so envious of you two guys being skinny little pricks here in Nashville, not dying as much as I am. I made the mistake of wearing all black today. Probably shouldn't do that again. Yeah. That's... I'm actually looking forward to walking home from our hotel. Cause I just, I like a good little sweat on to me. It'll be like all the way back up. to Edmonton or no, 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 just to the hotel. I think, to, I, I think we, we uh, mapped it out. It's like 17 minute walk. So, and I noticed as I was mapping it out here when we were in the, in the uh, car ride over that uh, there's some shade as you walk through it. So, you know what, if, if I'm out there for 17 minutes, get a little warm up and then go right to work now, Frank. It's like a warm up. It's perfect. So Barry Trotz during that Vegas Washington cup final every day, he'd open his press conference. Got to hydrate. <laughs> I, I'm telling you now, especially in Nashville. Now he's the GM I'm here and I'm like, I cannot drink enough water. We sent our awesome intern, Jacob Kem- Kendall out to go get us some, some water here. And I was like, I'm just, can somebody set me up with an IV of Fiji to just, just keep injecting it right into my veins. Cause I'm. Do you normally not drink a lot of water? 
I'm not a big water drinker. Oh, yeah. See, I am. But now I like even like so I woke up this morning, chugged three bottles of water. Uh, just to be totally candid, didn't really drink much last night. Had two, three Moscow mules. So like not aggressive at all. And I can't drink enough water. I feel like I'm. Oh, water's good, buddy. Sweat it out. It's good. Keep the body flowing. Now, the NHL uh, award you mentioned, uh, you'll be there tonight. And uh, we'll be, uh, Ty and I will be uh, trying not to mock you from the crowd. But you look at the awards and like, do you see any intrigue? Like, to me, I think there's a lot of ones where I'm like, okay, I think I know who's going to win. Mm-hmm. And like Connor McDavid's winning the Hart Trophy. Like I don't. That's not a debate for me. I think the Calder is uh, Benier, Skinner, and uh, and Owen Power. I think is uh, is you you can make a good debate over all three, um, depending on. And it's funny because a forward defenseman and a goalie they all play different positions. You're not really comparing them straight up. You got to compare them to a lot of different things. You know, is Bergeron winning the Selkie? Is Carlson winning the Norris? Like, do you see any intrigue that's more than the Calder? For uncertainty, um, probably not. Like maybe the Selkie. Like again, I I I struggled with my Norris vote this year. I think Eric Carlson's winning, and I don't really think there's a lot of doubt to that. But I I mean I've been pretty honest. Like I didn't vote him number one, and so I truly believe sitting here watching all this unfold this year was the perfect case. Like, let's create a separate award. Let's make one offensive defenseman award because it's really hard to be good at that. But let's have a true all-around... Like, the Norris Trophy is an all-around defenseman. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Eric Carlson, I cannot vote for you because you don't play on the penalty kill. For six, eight, whatever minutes it is per game that your team is shorthanded, you are glued to the bench. And you're not playing. How could you be all around if you don't impact the game there? It's a fair point. I look at it, and and so that's valid. So I look at guys, okay, they're on the penalty kill for two and a half minutes, because that's usually what, you know, maybe three. So they're on the ice for three minutes a game doing that. And if, if you're on the ice as a penalty killer, but your team's middle of the road, kind of meh, and you're not great out there, does it does that close the gap to a guy who did something that, very few players ever in NHL history have ever done, right? Like he's the only defenseman to ever score a hundred points and not have a forward. I think with, uh, with 80 points on his team. Yeah. Right. Cause uh, when Bork did it, I think he had one teammate who was at like 79 or, or sorry, 81 points or something like that. But I just, he wasn't a guy who was getting a lot of gift goals because he had elite forward. Right. Like he was the elite forward as far as a point production guy goes and did something that we just don't see very often. So I'm probably a little biased in that because I admit I like the offensive side more. Um, so it's a valid point. The thing about a defensive defenseman, then it couldn't go to because the Selkie used to be about a defensive forward. Now it's well, it's a defensive forward who produces a lot of points, too. Right. Like when was the last time you saw a Selkie winner who didn't put up decent offensive numbers? So I think if they brought in an NHL defensive defenseman, eventually would gravitate towards, well, I didn't vote this guy for the Norris, but this guy's really good and he's high end guy. So we're going to give him the, uh, the rod Langway if we want to call it that. Yeah. But uh, again, just a reminder that I think these things should evolve. Like we didn't have a defensive defensive forward award until the need for Bob Gainey's impact on the game created it. And that wasn't until the seventies. 
Do you, do you think today's game with offense becoming, I think we're now, now, I think offense and the way it's created now is like, we're now entering an environment that hasn't been seen since the actual position of the Rover existed in the game. And the Rover was someone that played everywhere. Now look at the way Roman Yossi leads the rush. Look at the way Eric Carlson is up and out of the zone it's a different position now than it was 20 years ago. As good as Bork was and as good as, you know, pick the defenseman that was an absolute well, Paul Coffey was up in the rush pretty good. Yeah, but like the point is we're in an era now that I think is highlighting that. And I just, I, I think you need to, I, here's what I think the NHL is worst at. And I think every front office will agree is evaluating defense and the impact of defense. It's a very difficult thing to not just quantify, but also qualify. And I think as a whole, we struggle to measure that in the game that even if we were to like, I think before getting there, we'd have to really sit down and think about the metrics that make a defenseman great. True. And then also when I say, a defensive defenseman award. How would you measure that? Like right now, the prototype guy that you'd point to is Jacob Slavin. Mm -hmm. And you'd say that guy, he defends as well or better than anyone. Yeah, no, he he would be definitely up there. But he's never going to win a Norris and is never going to be in the conversation because he doesn't really break 45 points a year. But he should be in the Lady Bing conversation. I'll just point that out. When you play as many minutes as he does. He won the Lady Bing already. Yeah, he should be there. No, did he win it? Didn't we have a defenseman win last year? Um, that's because we question. had Jacob Slavin on. He won. Yeah, talked to us about yeah, it on the pod. He, he yeah. won the Lady Bing. But to Bing. me, he should be there. Like Nick Lidstrom and he not winning. second last year. Nick Lidstrom not winning the Lady Bing is still one of the biggest travesties in NHL awards history. Okay. Just saying. Cannot be a travesty if no one cares. Oh, trust me. Hey, they care now because you know what? Defensemen never even used to get votes for the Lady Bing. It's bullshit that they never did. I know. That's but my I'm just point. saying I don't think they care. It's the trophy that no one wants to win. I don't know about that. I think. Um, Come on. No one wants to be known as the gentlemanly player in the toughest sport on the planet. Slavin said he was honored by it. I guess what else is he going to say, though? Yeah. What's he going to say? No, I'm first loser. Like. Come on. Uh, I think uh, I think some would care. It's not that. Uh, th- I think it's so hard to defend and not take penalties. Yes, like, I would it's take way harder in that. Way harder. But and when you it? play against the best forwards, a lot of the time too. It's not like he's cherry picking his minutes. He's playing a lot of the other team's best guys and doesn't take penalties when he's in a position where he's probably supposed to take penalties because you're trying to stop them from generating chances. Mm-hmm. So now. Um, we'll get to uh, Yarmo Kekalina. We'll end the pod with the uh, GM of the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. And Frank and I will have a few uh, extra special editions of the uh, DFO rundown this week uh, live from Nashville. So uh, tune in for more of those. Stay hydrated, Frank. I'll try. And it's here's, hard for me to do. And now here's uh, Yarmo Kekalina. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Starting next Friday, our next guest will be the third longest tenured general manager in the NHL. He's been with the Columbus Blue Jackets for just over a decade now on the calendar, going back to 2013. And he has the number three overall pick in Wednesday's draft. He's Yarmo Kekalainen from the Columbus Blue Jackets. Yarmo, thanks a lot for joining us again on the DFO Rundown. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? We're good. Uh, so it's been a busy offseason for you already. You have a new coach incoming. You've already overhauled your back end, adding two significant pieces in Ivan Provorov and Damon Severson. My big question is, without you giving away your state secrets, what's next for the Columbus Blue Jackets? Uh, lots of phone calls probably before the draft, just getting the lay of the land on, on what the other teams are thinking, what they're doing, what they, uh, they're planning, and uh, get to Nashville early and uh, continue with that and, and uh, make a good pick at three. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of different options available to you at three, but in terms of the short term and what Blue Jackets fans might be able to expect in their lineup next season, in terms of adding to your roster, maybe on the trade market or the free agent market, is there one priority for you that you're now looking at? You're saying, I'd like to improve this team in this area. Yeah, we've always talked about the uh, adding a center iceman, which is probably the hardest thing to do through a trade. That's why you've got to draft one and you've got to develop one and they're, they're very seldom available, but if there's an opportunity that we could add one, we'd probably do that. Uh, and uh, that's why we're working here every day and trying to uh, trying to find ways to improve our team. Yarmo, when you look at the, the draft, there's so much intrigue about uh, Meechkoff. You know what? The, we know he's under contract in the KHL for a few years. Um, he was, when the season started, a lot of people had him very close to Bedard. Now, you know, the season goes along. There wasn't a lot of people for views. As somebody who's who's uh, values the, the amateur draft a lot, ha, have you had enough views of him? Do, do you feel your organization has a good sense of what he is and what he could be? It's obviously been harder with the uh, with what's going on on that side of the world, and, and, and so we've relied a lot on video. We've seen him as an underage already quite a bit, and, and uh, there's no no doubt that he, there's a great talent there. So we feel that we're in a good spot as far as our evaluations go. Is there at all a benefit to knowing that you can have a draft pick that can't come for a few years because there's always the temptation to rush some players, and this is one where it'd be like, well, even if we wanted to, we couldn't. Is that a benefit at all? I don't know if it's a benefit, but we're definitely not going to rush the players. I think that's uh, been proven many, many times over that, that uh, the players cannot learn to play in the NHL. Uh, uh, that's not the right place to uh, yeah. to uh, be on the uh, in in schooling or whatever you want to call it. I think that you got to get your uh, development somewhere else, and and then uh, once you're ready to play in the National Hockey League, then. And you are ready, and that's our uh, 
our responsibility to make sure that we put those players in the right place where they can succeed. Um, you know, I've always given a lot of examples of players that um, you know, were sent back to juniors a couple of years or playing the minors for a couple of years and then they became great NHL players had great careers and and uh, you know people always want to see the top top picks in the uh, lineup right away but if they're not ready they're not ready and they still have a great career and 15 year career or whatever and, and that's that's the main focus here is to draft a player who's going to have the best career. Yarmo, I'm always fascinated when talking about the draft to try and break down the first round into different tiers. And when you have a special talent like Bedard at the top, he might, it might sort of be in his own class. And then you have maybe the next two, three, four players. But where does the, the line get drawn for you in terms of the next tier down after that? A lot of teams talk about the 9, 10, 11 range. When you look at this one in particular, where would you draw that line in terms of value? Well, I think that it depends on where you're drafting too. If you're drafting at nine ten, you want to focus on the uh, trying trying to get the uh, the player that makes an impact at nine. I think three, we're pretty secure that we're going to get an impact player. That's how we feel anyway. So I'm I'm not sure that I want to draw any lines beyond that. Um, there are a lot of good players available in this draft, and and we're confident that at three, we're going to get a great one. But uh, if we were to draft a 10, we'd be probably looking at, at a different scenario where we say, would say, and this is just um, kind, kind of um, making this up that we would say, that, okay, there's seven players there. Uh, we're not sure if they're going to make it to nine. Let's try to make, uh, make sure we get one of those. What, what, what does it cost to move up? Or if we don't get one of those and can't move up, uh, should we move down and get from uh, second tier and add a second round pick or something? You know, those are the type of thinkings that uh, we would have. And I can't speak for other teams, but that's what we would be thinking if we were to draft a nine or 10 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Moving away from the draft, we, we talked and touched early on the moves that you've made on your back end. And one of the, you know, the quotes or cliches that we always hear from GMs when it comes to the trade deadline is you can never have enough D when it comes to the playoffs. But when it comes to the defensemen that you have in your organization now, and particularly with some of the impact guys that are expected to make a bigger dent on your team next year, including Juracek and, and Denton Matichuk, when you take a look at that, do you, do you maybe have too many guys right now? Is it Does it become a numbers game to this point? And I ask that because it seems like that would be a good problem to have in terms of teams are always looking for defense. Uh, you nailed it right there. That would be a great problem to have and we'll deal with it if it comes to that. But again, Juricek is a player that we have uh, huge expectations for, but it's, it's not something that we're going to rush. He had a great first season in the American League, with an American League All-Star. We picked him sixth overall. We're going to bring him along the right way. If he's ready, he'll be on our team. And if he's not, we're not going to rush him. We're going to let him develop and and make sure that once once he sticks in the NHL, he'll be ready and he'll make an impact like he did last year in the American League already. And and he's got great potential. And, and Denton Matejchuk is, is similar. He's coming to his second camp as a 19-year-old this year. And was a captain of Moose Jaw and, and had a great season, but uh, we're definitely not going to rush him. And the example I always give those guys is that that uh, Alex Petroangelo was sent down to, uh, or sent back to junior twice in a row, and we drafted him fourth overall, and he's had a pretty good career. 
Yeah, pretty good career for sure. I just won a second Stanley Cup. Last year, of course, you made the big splash with Johnny Gaudreau and free agency. And uh, you guys even talked about how, you know, maybe kind of came up late. Uh, Damon Severson, you acquired him when he would have been a free agent, you know, a, a month, a few weeks later. What was the thought process and in, in why you needed to jump on that and give up a third rather than just wait and offer him the same money um, on a seven year deal of free agency? Why was this one maybe more important to get done early? Because we got a niche with the eight year offer there. And, and uh, you know, once you get to July one, it can get crazy. There could be 20 teams uh, battling for his services and we wanted to get ahead of it. That's why he had, we had accumulated some of those extra picks and in, in some of the other trades that so we could make a move like this. And we, we thought it was well worth it to spend a third on, on uh, Damon. He was our number one target. We wanted to make sure that we get him. Um, I've been in that situation July 1 too many times that, that um, you know, there's, there's just too much competition. The, the prices can get too high and, and um, then all of a sudden you end up empty handed and we wanted to make sure that we, uh, made some moves uh, in our back end and we got the two defensemen, two, two targets that we had uh, talked about in our, with our pro scouts and with our management, uh, Provorov through a, a trade and, and Damon Severson through a trade, trade, sign and trade that uh, allowed us to uh, offer him an eight year contract, which was important in, uh, in order to get him. When you acquire both of those guys, how how much does looking at where they fit on your lineup factor it in for you? Or are you just like, hey, we think they're good players. We'll worry about who plays with who later. Or is a big part of it knowing when you acquire the guys, this is who you want them to play with, assuming everyone's health? I think coach will have a big say in, in, in who plays with who and we'll leave it, leave it to the coaches. Obviously, we have our own uh, own uh, visions with our management and on who could play uh, with who and who could have chemistry, who's right-handed, who's left-handed, all those things, who's a, who's a top four who, and who can play big minutes, uh, special uh, teams, all those all those things. And I think the, the both of the defensemen that we acquired um, fit perfectly in what we needed. Um, we need, needed guys that can take up minutes to play against the best players on the other teams playing uh, all special team situations, shorthanded power play. And uh, we're looking for a partner for uh, Zach Wierenski as well with, uh, you know, he's, he's been our number one defenseman for a long time. And, and, uh, you know, one of these guys could be a great partner for him. And, and I think we're going to have a real solid and strong top four uh, after we acquired these two players. You've got a pretty solid group at the top of your forward lineup as well, Yarmo. And I want to ask about one guy that hasn't really been talked about much. Um, obviously, last season, a disappointing year for many. But Jack Roslovic, um, if you look at his point total on paper, he was only one back of where he was the previous season. But I think watching his game and watching sort of, you know, the track that he's on, you know, a lot of people might look at that and say, there's more there. He can give you more. Where, where do you land on, on Jack Roslovic and, and how big of a year is this going to be for him? Well, Jack's got great talent and, and he's just got to use it more consistently. I think that's part of growing up as a player. And I think he's uh, at that age now where he's going to have to start doing it. And next year, he's going to be a, an unrestricted free agent unless we uh, extend him. Or, or um, you know, so he he needs to have a big year, and I think that uh, the flashes that you see with Jack for for a number of games uh, leaves you 
leaves you wanting that every night. And uh, I think that's that's something that most of the young players struggle with uh, early in their careers. That, that they uh, once you show what you can do, the, the coaches and the management want to see it every night. And he's in great shape. He, he takes good care of himself. He's uh, he's a great athlete. So there's no reason to uh, to um, not have that consistency. So. Uh, I think Jack's having a big offseason here, thinking about that, and, and uh, he's going to have his best year coming up. And a big step forward, potentially, for your team as a whole. Obviously, you make these moves, the free agent moves last year, now the trades that you've made, the new coach. The expectations begin to ratchet up a bit. How do you feel? Obviously, still an incomplete picture to this point. More work to be done. But how do you feel about where this team is heading and, and potentially competing for a playoff spot next year. That is the plan for the Blue Jackets. Yeah, well, yeah, we want to take a big step forward now. We, uh, we're we sick and tired of being out of the playoffs. And obviously, we had a rough year last year uh, for, for many different reasons. But um, I think we're ready to bounce back. I think we're stronger now with the additions that we had. We're stronger with the young group that we have. And, and we're ready to take that next step and get back into the playoffs. We got a great team. Of it. We didn't get a, a whole lot of success uh, into the playoffs. Only won one round with the with the, in 2019, but uh, that leaves leaves that taste in your mouth where you want to get more. And uh, we got a lot of good, experienced core players that have been there. We got a lot of young talent that that wants to get there and get that taste. So um, uh, with the new coach, I think we're going into the right direction, and we're going to take that step next year. Yarmo, you mentioned earlier how it's difficult to get the center. You've acquired Seth Jones, Proveroff, uh, obviously Severson, maybe a little bit different because uh, he was the pending UFA. But you've been able to acquire the big name defenseman. Is it because centers sometimes you know earlier what their potential is and teams aren't willing to trade him as much? Why is it seemingly easier across the league sometimes to, to get defensemen who turn out to be number one defensemen but not centers? Well, I think that those are the probably the two hardest um, positions to acquire defensemen and, and uh, especially top four and center icemen. And, and it's uh, you see it a lot where, where you draft a center and then he's not able to do that in the national hockey league. I think that's why it's such a rare position to, uh, to be available for trades and, and, uh, and it's a hard job. It's a, it's a 200 foot job. It's, there's a lot of defensive responsibility, the face-offs, a lot of different things that uh, young players in particular struggle with. So, um, yeah, I, I wish I had a better answer for that, but I think that, um, with, um, with the, the draft and develop, um, philosophy that we have, um, this year's draft is huge for us because we're going to get a true true number one center Iceman there and, and we're going to have to develop them the right way knowing that uh, those players just are not available through, through trade and very rarely at the uh, free agency as well. And Yarmo, now I know you can't talk about other teams' players who are under contract, but there's a few teams out there. Frank reported yesterday on you know, Calgary, Winnipeg. They got some guys that are, that are on the move. When, when you know another team has a player who wants out, does that make it easier to acquire them or harder because now you can't necessarily surprise everybody else and, and all the other GMs know. Well, we've been in that situation a couple times where players uh, going into their last year before they become unrestricted free agents, they, they, 
want to have that power. They want to flex their muscle a little bit and that's their right. And, and if you know that the player is not going to sign with you a year from now, it's a tough decision. You probably have to trade him because if you keep him and, and then you decide to trade him at the deadline, that means that you're probably trading him to a team that's already in the playoffs. And so your draft pick that you're acquiring is probably going to be a late, late first, if you're lucky or, or late second, whatever. But, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a tough decision to make, you know, you wait, waiting until the deadline doesn't work. If you're in the playoffs, now you're going to have to give up a player that is a big part of your group. So probably the best, best chance that you have to improve your team into the future is to trade them the, uh, one, with one year left and the return is normally a little bit bigger as well. And lastly, for me, Armo, we're, we're heading into, of course, the, the draft on, on Wednesday. How do you view this? You have a top pick, of course, but how do you see, you know, the later round picks? Obviously, they're hugely important for any team. You, you got to find at least one or two picks there that pan out. But how do you see the depth in this year's draft after the first round? Well, that's that's where the amateur scouts uh, have the opportunity to shine. The, if you can find some some players in the later rounds, that's that's what makes the amateur scouting staff valuable. And, and we've had some really good success in the later rounds. So, you know, even if somebody says that it's not a deep draft, I always say let's make it, let's make it a great one. And uh, the area scouts come to play huge there, where they know their guys inside and out. And if somebody's banging the table when there's still a guy. Uh, uh, left at, uh, on the fifth round and they feel very strongly about it. They, they think that they should have, that guy should have been drafted a lot earlier. That's where the area guys gotta, gotta have a strong opinion on, okay, let's, let's take this guy now. And, uh, and that's how you find some, some good gems in the later rounds. And, and the teams that can do that, they can add depth to the organization and, and um, depth is huge, as we've seen uh, in, into the in, in the playoffs, and and um, you know whichever part of the season you're working with, if you have depth, it, it allows you to uh, to improve your team. Great opportunity and great perspective, as always, Yarmo Kekalainen. Thanks for joining us. Good luck, uh, best of luck in the draft, and enjoy your time in Nashville. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear, and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight 
cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.